Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, Nick Mehta. Uh, co-founder and CEO of Gainsight. Uh, Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. Great to be here. Nick, why don't you give a little bit of the origin story of, of first what Gainsight is and out of all the things you could have started, why you came to start Gainsight and, and why you thought that this was a, a, an enormous opportunity. Totally, yeah. So um, so Gainsight, we're, we're uh, our company is all about the idea that in modern business models, whether you think of SaaS or you think of cloud or consumption-based pricing, the common denominator is the power is moving to the customer. In the old, as you probably know, old business models, you might sell a customer something and you know, they pay their money up front, they're kind of stuck with it. You can walk, away, walk over to the next customer. But now you kind of have to re-earn your customer's business every day. And that, that's changing the way companies run fundamentally, where they used to think, okay, we need to build products and we sell them. And now they realize you have to build products, you have to sell them, but you need to make sure those customers are successful. And so our company's mission is to help our customers make their customers successful. And in that process, help them keep their customers longer, get them to spend more money and make them bigger advocates. The way we do that is we build software that helps across the company's life cycle from, from building more customer-centric products by measuring how people are using your product and measuring adoption to managing customers proactively after the sale, figuring out which ones are at risk, which ones might be about to leave you before they leave you, you can try to intervene to figuring out how you can upsell and cross sell them more uh, once they've gotten a good point of value. And in terms of the origin story, so I've been uh, running Gainsight seven years now, actually my seven year anniversary was about a week ago. Um, so that's exciting. And I, I did not found Gainsight. So I actually joined super early. It's kind of a unique story where um, there are two, our two founders, Jim Eberlin and Sridhar Pedinetti had started another SaaS company. Um, had rolled out of that company and started Gainsight to solve the problems they saw in their last SaaS company. They saw customers that were churning unexpectedly and they were surprised. They saw situations where they didn't really understand the health of a customer. They saw situations where the customer expected them to be proactive and they weren't. And so they started Gainsight with that vision. And I, they were pitching investors very early on, a uh, process you, you can appreciate, Eric. And uh, they were in the very early stages. Um, they had a few beta customers. And um, I was an EIR at entrepreneur residence at a venture firm, and I met met them just sort of through the the Valley Network. And I, but prior to Gainsight, I had run a SaaS company myself, and I had run it and sold it. And I had learned that when you move in and running a, a subscription business, you've got to focus on your customers. So I'd seen this pain firsthand. And when I saw the pitch, I was sold. Even though it was literally like a super early stage company with almost no revenue, I was sold on the idea. And basically the last seven years we've spent trying to create this category of customer success and get companies to rethink their relationship with their customers. Totally. And congrats on the, uh, on the anniversary. Uh, Thank you. Now, when did customer success really become a recognized category and, and what was that uh, evolution, uh, evolution like for the industry? Yeah, totally. Totally. So first of all, I'll give credit where credit's due. So the, you know, the first real material SaaS company, of course, is Salesforce, right? In terms of large scale. And they had to innovate on everything and being a SaaS business. And one of the things they had to do, and we document this in this book we wrote on customer success, is early on, they saw the same problem. They said, oh, wow, we were selling these customers. And if they weren't using the product, they were leaving us. What do we do? And they created, uh, Mark Benioff created years ago, 
their first customer success team uh, in the whole world, right? And they, they called, they used that term. This is kind of the early 2000s. Uh, now, that concept was still pretty limited. It was, it was there in a small way in Salesforce. A few other early SaaS companies had it, like Success Factors and, and a small number of other ones. Um, so all the way through probably 2015, it was a pretty niche area. So when we launched our company in 2013, there was a few hundred CSMs in the whole world. We actually we have the data from LinkedIn. It was a very small area. Um, but really, roughly 2015, 2016, it started going more mainstream. In 2013, as a company, we decided our job isn't just to sell software. We want to evangelize the concept of customer success. So we launched this conference on customer success called Pulse. It's not, not a conference about gain sites, about the whole field of customer success. In 2013, when we ran the first Pulse in San Francisco, we had 300 people show up to the event. You fast forward to 2019, so last May, about nine months ago, we had six, about 5,200 people in San Francisco at the same event. So that gives you a sense of how much the, the field of customer success has grown over the last seven years. And, and what other uh, big companies have emerged uh, as a result from it? Yeah. So I think that in the tech area, Gainsight is you know, sort of far and away the, the largest company by many, many orders, many, many factors, you know, probably order of magnitude bigger than the next company um, in the CS technology area. But um, what's, what's happened is, uh, first of all, the, the job itself has grown a ton. So we, we partnered with LinkedIn and, and, you know, back in 2013, there were a few hundred CSMs in the world. And now, you know, it, it, we have data is about nine months old. But we, if I estimated forward, we're probably about 100,000 100, CSMs in the world uh, now. So it's growing about 100% a year. Um, it's international. There's CSMs in lots of different industries. So just broadly, it's changed the way companies work and it's one of the it's the third fastest growing job according to LinkedIn. So that's very exciting, just the, the momentum in the space. It's created an opportunity for technology companies like Gainsight. You know, we're we're fortunate to be the, the main player in that space. It's created um, reinvigorated energy in the overall post sales area and customer experience. So companies are investing more in support software like Zendesk and, and Salesforce Service Cloud. They're investing more in how they train their customers. They're investing more in professional services. They're investing in the executive function too. So one of the hottest jobs out there is chief customer officer, you know, the person that's running all this stuff inside a company. So it's created a lot of effects. Um, obviously, we're, we're fortunate to be part of that. What's the best way to think about customer success? Is it a skill set, a function, a software stack, a combination? Yeah. yeah. The answer is yes, uh, very well articulated. So when we talk about it, there's kind of, um, you know, I'd call it four levels to customer success. So at the most tactical level, there's a customer success manager in many companies, and their job is to manage a portfolio of customers. It could be one customer if it's a really big one, and it could be a thousand if they're managing kind of a bunch of SMBs. And their job is to, you know, manage those customers, figure out which ones need attention, be proactive with them help those customers adopt the product or service and get value out of it with the goal of renewing and expanding. And that's a very well-established job, one of the fastest growing jobs in the world. So that's kind of level one, right? Level two is it's a team because obviously that person is part of a team. And often what people are doing is putting customer success together with all the other post-sales functions, support, professional services, training, everything that happens after the sale. So kind of level two is it's a team and that sometimes the head of that team is called a chief customer officer or a VP of customer success. Level three is it's definitely a strategy and mindset across the company because no matter how much you do as a customer success person, you're affected by the product and how it was built. You're affected by how it was sold and the expectations set. You're affected by the pricing model. And so customer success in, in companies as they get more mature becomes a company-wide strategy tying the whole company together around your customers. 
and then the fourth level is obviously it's a it's a discipline so it, it, you can use technology you can use processes you can use methodologies and that's kind of where we come in to help bring kind of science to this whole field of customer success yeah and, and what's the relationship between sales and, and customer success uh, what's the right way to think about it Who, who's responsible for uh, owning the renewal yeah, great question. And I actually just yesterday um, was at Stanford Business School. We, we helped write a case on customer success and talked about this exact topic. And I was teach, helping to teach the case. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a topic that is probably the number one uh, topic in question of customer success. And as you're not surprised to know, the answer, of course, is it depends. Um, and really depends on the uh, nature of the company's business model and kind of where they are in their evolution. So I'll kind of try to put it into sort of two axes to make it simple, right? So you can think of one dimension, which is, um, how high value is the product or service you're selling, right? You're, are you selling something that's a thousand dollars a year kind of transactional? Or are you selling something that's a million dollars a year, right? So that's, think of that as one axis. And then the other axis is where are you in your maturity? Are you an early stage startup? Are you a mature company, private equity backed, public, et cetera? Okay, so if I kind of follow that maturity curve of, of those two di different axes, so on the value axis, um, what we find is in more transactional products, thousand dollars a year, five thousand dollars a year, Often it's a bit of a handoff where, you know, new sale is done by the salesperson, handoff to customer success person. Sometimes they're even doing the renewal and in some cases the expansion. So it's a bit more of a handoff. In high value products, think of a million dollar a year type relationship. It's much more of a team sport. You know, sales brings the deal in. Customer success might even be involved in closing the deal and, and sort of being helping the customer understand the post experience after the sale the customer's still talking to the salesperson about expansion, the customer success person's helping to drive value. It's much more collaborative. And then if you look at that other axis of maturity, in the early days, what you find is customer success managers are much more focused on adoption value and really just helping to drive product market fit. Like in the companies you invest in, a big part of customer success is literally helping the engineers understand what are people using? Are they getting value? What are, what are the problems? Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the customer. And over time, customer success, as you get more mature, gets much more metrics driven, more revenue accountability, et cetera. So the most mature customer success organizations, they own revenue, they own renewals, et cetera. But in the early days, it's really just about adoption and value. Totally. And well, why don't you give a bit of an overview about how founders should be thinking about the customer success role in terms of when to bring on their first person? Uh, how do they think about uh, evolving that role uh, over, over time? When to hire a chief uh, uh, you know, customer success officer, how to do that well. Why don't you trace us through the, the journey a little bit? Totally, yeah. So uh, if, I, I like how you upfront said, is customer success a role or is it a function? And I'm going to use that same framework here, kind of those four levels I talked about, right? So when you think about um, customer success as a role, many, many, many founders now are making that role one of the first hires. I actually have a number of friends who's, you know, they've, you know maybe the founder's an engineer or product manager, the second person's an engineer, third person might be an engineer and the fourth person might be a customer success manager. Now, is that person doing renewals? No, because there's probably nothing to renew at that point, right? You might not even be charging, but that person is sitting there with the customers and understanding the feedback and looking at the analytics on usage and helping product management engineering build the right stuff and get to product market fit. So at that function level, people are, I mean, at the role level, people are doing it from day one. Um, from the very early days. What you want, though, is not some experienced customer success manager. You want a really good utility player who can wear lots of different hats from training the customer to supporting them to getting feedback to working with product. You need somebody who's really, really able to do lots of different jobs 
Um, often those people don't come from customer success background. Sometimes they're just scrappy people that want to get help out in a startup and maybe they don't come from a coding background. So that's kind of that, that individual job. But if you look at the next level, of when do you create a department? Usually what you're doing in the early days is, you know, you're maybe you have one CSM, then you have two and you have three. And I, I wouldn't at that point create a department. They're probably still rolling into somebody who may, maybe manages sales and customer success and kind of everything that's not the product, right? At, at some point, I find anywhere from 50 employees to probably about a 150 employees, you're creating a, a bit of a department. Maybe it's a director of customer success. Maybe it's a VP. You're breaking it out from sales. You're making its own function. Depends on a little bit on your funding and things like that. Now, that layer three of it being a philosophy and a strategy, honestly, you should do that from day one. The best companies, and I'd say it's almost like table stakes now. If you're a SaaS founder and you're not saying customer centricity, customer success, measuring our customers, being proactive is what we're going to do from day one, you are not on the right path. So that's something you should embrace from day one. Uh, and we wrote a book on customer success, you can find on Amazon. Good, good read to just get a primer on this. And then layer four, which is kind of the process and technology and methodology, as, as you probably know, a lot of that stuff, you, you need to do a little bit on your own before you really start using technology. So you, often it's 50 employees, 75 employees, 100 employees, you raise maybe a venture round. That's when you're starting to bring in process and technology and discipline and stuff like that. So that hopefully gives you a, an answer on when to start. Uh, totally. And um, tease them. Uh, tease your book a, a little bit in the sense of what, what were some of the uh, things that founders uh, might find non-obvious from your book or might not be fully appreciating about uh, about customer success or might be doing uh, might be doing you know incorrectly currently. Yeah, totally. So so um, you know uh, if you kind of like you said up front, I think customer success. If you just heard it and <laughs> you're not in the domain, it sounds like a, yet another buzzword in technology, right? So I think part of this is like okay, let's demystify like what is it? Why are people doing it? It, what, as you said, is it a role? Is it a department? Is it, is it a process? Is it technology? And so, so in the book, we try to kind of break down a lot of those concepts. And we, we have this very simple list of what we call the 10 laws of customer success. Um, there are things like the product is the number one priority. So no matter what you do with CSMs, at the end of the day, the biggest thing is how easy is the product? How easy is it to adopt? Another one is customer success is an area that must be measured like sales and marketing and, and other areas. So we try to give some practical list of, of sort of tips. We go through some history of companies that created customer success, including Salesforce. Um, we share a lot of stories from leaders of customer success. So it's helpful to just understand sort of what, uh, where you're going. And frankly, a lot of companies will use it with their management team and have people read it. Many companies made it sort of part of the new employee onboarding, uh, things like that. Now we have a second book coming out in May which is you, you can think of as the advanced version, which is, okay, now that I've scaled up, how do I do this really well? How do I actually uh, do it in an innovative way? How do I do it across the company? But the version that you can find on Amazon now is sort of a very good foundation to the field. Totally. And are there, are there common mistakes that people do when trying to scale the function up that you uh, feel your book, uh, book addresses? Totally. Let me give you a few examples of very common mistakes. So number one is, um, in the early days I mentioned, customer success managers kind of should do everything, right? Like they're, they're like kind of the catch-all. But one mistake you can make is you keep them the catch-all as you scale. So like when you're five employees, yeah, they're going to be the catch-all because you have like one of them and you have four engineers, right? But now you're 20 employees and they're the catch-all and that's probably fine. But now you're 50 employees and you've got like 10 CSMs and they're kind of doing everything and it's, a, it's, it's like covering up for problems in the business and you really should be splitting out like a, a reactive support function. You really should have a person doing training 
You should have, um, you might need to have an onboarding team. And so one of the things is how do you avoid customer success being a catch-all? Another, another thing that um, you know, a lot of people wrestle with when they kind of think of this is how do you define, as you asked about up front, the role between sales and customer success and not have it be too overlapping, not have it be confusion inside the company. How do you have common language? A third one is how do you get to the point when you have five or 10 CSMs and you've raised some money and you have 60 employees in the company and you, know, you, you have to figure out what the ROI of all these people is, that you have a way to measure the output of these customer success people and, and sort of the ROI. You mentioned earlier um, around sort of the, um, not debate, but discussion around the role, evolving discussion around the role of sales and, and customer success. What are other current sort of uh, debates or discussions or things that we're still figuring out uh, in the field of customer success in the sense of it's still early days in, in this aspect and where, uh, you know, time will tell where, 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 we, um, where we net out or just people have disagreements about? Yeah, totally. So, so um, if I went through kind of like the, the top five questions I get asked that have kind of like robust answers that it depends, so to speak. So one of them is, as, as we talked about, revenue ownership. So does customer success own renewals? Should they do upsell on their own? Does it all, is it all in sales? A second one is, what's the profile of a customer success manager? Where, where, what, do they, what do they need to be? Do they, should they be product experts? Should they be sales oriented? Should they come from a consulting background? And, and the answer to that one, my quick answer is, if, if your product is a little bit more transactional, Typically, CSMs tend to be a little more product-oriented. If it's a high-touch enterprise-type deal, they tend to be a little more consultative. That's like a, a cheat sheet. A, a third, third kind of uh, common question that people have is, you know, as you get bigger, how do I fund this? Um, and and where, how do I think about the cost for this? And so quick answer there is, and there's a few different models people look at. Some people will say, okay, this is just a cost of like me scaling my business. It's a, almost like, a, like my, almost like my support cost or my Amazon cost. It's like part of my cost of goods sold, so to speak, right? A second way is, no, this is really the way that I sell renewals and expansion. So it's almost like the same sales cost, but just for my existing customers. And a third way is some people will actually charge for customer success. So they'll actually say like to a customer, we'll have some light customer success if you don't pay, but if you pay extra, we give you a high touch kind of model. So that's a third kind of common topic. A fourth one, which is probably the hottest, like more recent topic, or actually I'll go fourth and fifth. The fourth is, um, how do I do this for small customers? So it's one thing to say, great, I've got, you know, CSM, 20 accounts, but if I have 10,000 customers spending 500 bucks a month, what does that translate to? People call that tech touch, which is how do I do this through automation, through email, through in-product communications, through SMS. And then the final one I'll give you is how do I collaborate between product and, and customer success so that customer success uh, is using and driving the product to the maximum adoption. And the product team is learning from customer success in terms of what's being used, what feedback you're getting, things like that. Totally. The, um, you know, I, I want to go deeper here because we glossed over a little bit in the beginning where we talked about how the, the vendor and customer dynamic has shifted uh, in the past year where the customer or user now has, uh, has a lot more power. Uh, talk a little bit about that broader trend and, and how that came to be. Yeah, totally. So the, the, it's interesting because some people listening to the podcast luckily never had to work in the world of on-premise software, right? So there's some, some stuff you have to explain, right? That, that uh, in, in, uh, if you look, you know, 20 years ago, you know, the software was installed on computers or on servers, you know, it was pre-internet, right? And so customers bought stuff, they paid up front for it. So they write a big check for that. That's called software licensing. Um, they might pay an ongoing cost for support, but the majority of the money they spent was up front. They installed things on their computer. They actually did do all the work themselves to set it up, right? And so because of that, um, that old model meant you gave up your money up front and you were kind of stuck. It was hard to switch. There also weren't a lot of alternatives. There weren't 
seed funds and accelerators. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't AWS. So there weren't like 20 different choices for any given category. Now you fast forward to the day, we have a, a business model where you don't pay up front. You either pay as you go, you pay based on usage. You have a, a technology model where you're not like installing software in your own computers, it's all running in the cloud. And you have a competitive landscape where pretty much in every category, there's many choices for anything, right? And so because of that, the customer has the power. They haven't paid you their money, they can switch easily, and there are lots of alternatives. That's what drove the, the change. And, and we talked about the rise of customer success being one of the, um, uh, you know, one of the biggest implications. Um, what are some of the other uh, big implications that, that emerged uh, from that in terms of uh, how things changed? Yeah, totally. So if you look at it overall, there's kind of, the, you can think of this like playbook for being a, a modern uh, subscription recurring revenue business. And this is a playbook, of course, that every young startup does naturally, but also all the big companies have had to go do like Adobe moving to subscription-based pricing, right? Or um, all the other Autodesk, all these Microsoft famously with Azure, right? So if you look at this, there's, there's a kind of a list of things I think of almost like a simple five-point checklist. Um, number one, is um, you need to have the, the financing to support it, right? So one, one of the good things about the old models is you actually got paid up front. So it's actually much easier. Companies didn't raise that much venture capital back in the old days because they, you know, most of the money would just come from customers paying them up front. So number one is you need the right financing. That means if you're a young company, it's the right venture capital. If you're a, a public company, that might be investor support. If you're a private equity-backed company, you know, your, your board support. Number two, is you, you need the right product strategy. This is something you know a lot about. For, for young founders, this comes naturally, right? Microservices, Agile, Scrum, uh, design thinking, all these things. But actually for the big companies, these are things they have to bring into their company. That's not how they used to work. And so really rethinking the product strategy is number two. Number three, rethinking the go-to-market strategy. So the old go-to-market models were very heavy, you know, at lots of expensive sales, channel partners, systems integrators, uh, marketing wasn't very measurable, um, but it was a big deal, so everything worked out. And in this new model where the deals are smaller and higher velocity, you have to do a lot more, like much more use of digital marketing, lower cost sales, higher velocity. So that's rethinking the go-to-market. Number four is rethink the customer experience and customer success, that's my, my world, obviously. And then number five, which is probably le less intuitive, is that these comp all, all the companies, probably people listening to this podcast, don't appreciate that the culture is radically different. In companies where you have customers have the power, it forces everyone in the company to be much more aligned with each other. The old companies can have much more of a silo mentality, sales, marketing, product, all kind of working on their own. And in these new companies, the cultures have to be much more integrated. So those are the five things I think about. Yeah. And what, what are the uh, implications about the culture being much more integrated or, or what do you have to do as a result or, or what companies emerge from that trend or, or what's, uh, yeah. what's important? It's a great there? question. So a few different things. And by the way, there are many factors happening at once here. So in parallel to all this, employees are much more empowered. It's much more of an employee versus employer economy. There's much more choice for employees. A lot of the trends we talked about for customers actually apply to employees too. And in fact, your employees are your customers in a different sense, right? So the implication of this is, is many fold. So I'll just share some examples. So one is that, um, you know, because employees are more like customers, uh, employers are forced to think of them more in a much more proactive way. All the concepts I talked about, and I give you examples of technology comes out of this is a lot of investment now in HR technology, right? Some the existing stuff, but also the newer companies you think of like Glint, which LinkedIn bought or CultureAmp or other companies like that that are helping companies 
understand their employee sentiment, employee feedback, be more proactive with them, right? Very analogous to what Gameplay does on the customer side. You're seeing a lot more investment in employee, um, employees in general. Obviously, all the benefits and the, the free lunches and all that that gets you know, popularized in the news, but just generally being much more understanding of what employees are doing. Um, but then one, one implication, I think, from a management perspective is it's a little more challenging as a CEO. And if, you're, if CEOs are listening, you probably may experience this. In the old world, you could say, okay, this person owns sales, this person owns product. Everything's pretty isolated. In the new world, everything kind of affects everything a lot more. So the product affects customers, which affects sales. It's a little harder to draw hard lines and kind of silo the company. Silos sound like they're bad, but one thing that made was easier is understanding who owned what. So it makes it a little bit more complicated, I'd say, to manage. That's why you're seeing companies adopt more cross-functional planning. For example, objectives and key results, OKRs, right? Which is all about having goals be much more integrated across the company. Uh, totally. What's the best way to... Um to measure customer success, um, uh, both on the company and on an individual employee level. Totally. So we, we, we talk about the concept of kind of three layers of measurement. So these layers apply to any job. There is what, what I call the lagging indicators. That's, that's the, the eventual output in any business process. The leading indicators, which tell you whether you're on track, and then the activities, which are the things you do to drive the leading indicators. So in customer success, the lag indicators are, are straightforward. It's you're driving uh, you're trying to get your customers to stay longer, and, and people measure that usually in something called gross retention rate or gross renewal rate, GRR. And that means, okay, if a customer, if a portfolio of customers is spending $100 this year, looking a year later, how much is that customer portfolio spending without counting any upsells? So basically, you can only go down. So $100 can turn into 90, can turn into 80, couldn't turn into 110. And that's measured on a percentage basis. So your GRR could be 70%, 80%, 90%, and so on. That's typically the most common like lagging indicator. Number two is giving the benefit of upsell. It's called net retention rate or net renewal rate. And that's saying I, I can count the upsell. So that number can be above 100%. That could be 110%, 120%. Some companies have 150% NRR. And then number three is how much of an advocate are those customers? Are they becoming fans of me? So they're helping me get new customers. Um, and that's measured in lots of different ways. One of the most popular is net promoter score. Um, and that's a measure of likelihood of your customers to recommend you zero. It's anywhere from negative 100 to positive 100 on the score. Now, leading indicators, I won't go through all of them, but the question is, what are the things that could lead people to renew, to expand, and to be an advocate? And so there's many things that you could look at, product adoption, uh, daily active usage, um, uh, their customer satisfaction, that you could look at um, how often are, do we have an executive relationship with them? How often are they meeting with me? A lot of indicators. We, we kind of add all that stuff up into what we think of as kind of a health score. So think of that like a green, yellow, red, a predictor of the likelihood to renew, expand, or be an advocate. And then you go all the way back to activities, and that's things like, you know, are you meeting with the customer on a regular basis? Are they opening your emails? Um, you know, are they, are they doing the right things in the product? And so what you want to do is measure the lagging indicators, figure out what the leading indicators, typically in the health score to kind of prognosticate the lagging indicator and to determine the activities to move the leading indicator. We were talking about how the, uh, the path of, uh, of, of, of SaaS evolution or customer success evolution. Uh, talk about where it's, where it's going. Totally. So it, 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 when, one thing we, we share in our conference, very simple kind of thing is we say um, uh, CS, um, customer success, is a combination of two core ingredients. Uh, we say CS equals CO plus CX. It's kind of an equation on the, on the screen. So CO is your clients getting outcomes they're looking for. 
and CX is clients having great experience. And that's important to understand because the, some people hear customer success and they think, oh, I need to make my customers happy. They need to have a great experience. But as you know, in B2B, people don't buy products to be happy. They buy products to achieve an outcome, a business goal, right? It could be generate more leads or generate more revenue or make my employees uh, more successful. And so the outcome is the goal the customer has. The experience is the feeling they have working with you. Customer success is about getting your customers to the outcomes they're looking for with the great experience. So that concept, it represents kind of the North Star for where this industry needs to go. But to do that, if you think about your, getting your customers to good outcomes with good experiences, that's not going to come just from the customer success team. So the second equation we draw on the board is CS is greater than CSM. So CSM is a job, customer success manager. Customer success is the whole company working together, goes back to what I said at the beginning, to drive towards that outcome and experience. And so the future of customer success is it's a company-wide thing. It starts with the product team, building the right product, understanding the product, customer feedback, knowing how people are using the product. It goes into the sales team and how you're setting expectations of the sales process, how you're capturing the client's goals when you sell to them. So after you sell, you know those goals and can deliver to them. It goes into the onboarding process, goes into the customer success team, goes into the marketing team, making them a case study. So the biggest trend is customer success going across the company. I want to zoom out a little bit from customer success and ask you about your uh, your angel and in, investor uh, investment thesis. You know, one thing we we like to partner with uh, with top angels at, at Village Global, like, like like yourself. How are you thinking about investing uh, more broadly in terms of from a macro perspective? What subsectors or spaces are are are, are you th uh, thinking about and, and interested in and uh, have invested in? Yeah, totally. So I I. Um... First of all, I would say um, definitely just one of many and by no means an expert, and you know a thousand times more about this than I do, but the little lens of the world that I see is, um, it, 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 I guess I'd say a couple lenses. One is in the world of um, kind of how we engage with customers, I do think there's a lot of innovation happening outside of GameSite. We're just one of a much larger trend. And so I think there's a lot of innovation happening around kind of customer engagement, obviously a lot on the sales and marketing side, which has happened, but still more to come there. And I, I'm continue to find interesting stuff, particularly on the data side around, you know, uh, data around customers and how you can um, sell to the right customers and reinventing the sales process. I think there's a lot in that area still to be done. Um, and then post-sale, closer to my world, there's a lot outside of Gainside around, you know, what's the future of customer support? What's the future of customer training and, you know, things like that. I think there's a lot of innovation to happen there. I also think that there's innovation, um, and I'm definitely not the only one that thinks this, around the surface area of these tools and, you know, looking at next generation platforms. So, for example, it's super intriguing to say, see how people are reinventing support and communications through systems like Slack, right? Where you have Slack and it's widely used and and you know you don't have to get new people on it. They're in a given company that they're already using it and kind of reinventing the the sort of that as the kind of basic mode of communication. And now you can say, well, what does customer support look like on Slack as a, as an example? Um, so that's all kind of in one theme. Um, you can call it using the buzzword of future of work, but very specifically applied to kind of customer engagement, which is my little world. And then a world that I know more from a customer lens is I continue to just be amazed um, as I, we, we, we sell to a lot of SaaS companies and most people know the horizontal SaaS companies very well, right? Because we all can relate to the companies that build technology for customer engagement or sales or HR. But um, the, the number of vertical industries is just astounding, right? And I think you see that too. Um, and not just the big verticals that we all understand like banking, big commercial banking or 
uh, retail banking, but all these very, very specific niche areas. And it's, it's amazing and inspiring to see entrepreneurs that have domain experience in verticals coming out and finding ways to solve vertical problems, particularly in verticals, as, as you know well, uh, you can solve full stack problems. So you can build technology, because you can also do payments, you can do marketplace, and you can really build a full stack solution that's kind of a SaaS plus, where it has a SaaS subscription, but has other revenue vehicles as well. Yeah. The, um, is, is, have you heard of things, or how do you think about sort of the Gainsight for X phenomena, like what Gainsight did for customer success, opportunities for other companies doing other subspaces or emerging sectors? Is there anything that is yeah, similar? It's, it's, first of all, I, I've had entrepreneurs come up to me and, and they've said that their venture pitches are the Gainsight for X, and it's super flattering. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know, I don't know if we're ready to be the analogy yet. So, but but I've certainly, I certainly put a smile to my face. I, I have seen people in the kind of gain site, I was alluding to this before, gain site for uh, teammate success. If you use that kind of HR, basically, right? How do you make your customer, your employee successful, employee success? I've seen a number of companies in different parts of that, which I think is really interesting because I do think that there's this um, uh, opportunity around uh, being more proactive with your employees. And I think that I, the reason I think there is some merit to it, I mean, any, everything becomes a buzzword, but there's some merit to this concept of customer success applied to other areas, which is if you just look at the broader trend, friction is going down in the economy. And it's very simple. It's just purely supply and demand. It's much easier to provide different services and technology than ever before because of AWS and lower payment, simpler, lower friction payments, all these things. And because of that, um, in almost every industry, I think industries are going to move to ones of shared value. If you look at customer success in SaaS, what's happening? It's saying, okay, the, the vendor wins when the customer wins. That's the fundamental idea behind my world. Vendor wins when customer wins. I think that trend of shared value exchange is going to apply to almost every part of the world, right? The employee success area is company wins when the employee wins. And employee wins when the company wins, but it's not a tr zero-sum game. I, I do believe that you could probably follow that mental model to many, many industries and apply the same concept. Totally. How, how do you think about the sales enablement uh, space particularly, or, or companies that are doing th interesting things around sales? Yeah, you know, it's, one, so one, one learning there um, in SaaS is, a, is a definitely, a, it, for some companies, it's a sprint. You know, we can pick our favorite Zoom as an example, right? The, the rare ones that are, you know, five years to giant revenue slack, et cetera. But the reality is most SaaS industries are a total marathon, right? Like seven years, 10 years, more. Um, and so sales enablement is, I think, a really interesting example of that um, concept, where um, today there are some really interesting sales enablement technology companies, um, Seismic, which is actually a Gainsight customer uh, in Southern California, um, has built a really sizable business now around sales enablement technology. Um, there's obviously the next gen of like call recording, like Gong.io, which is a great company. We use it. Um, they're also Gainsight customer. I know them well. Um, the uh, folks that are doing uh, analytics around sales, like People.ai. And I think that some of these ideas have actually been around for like 10 years. And honestly, the, some of the startups that started 10 years ago kind of timed out, right? Because it was a little too early. Um, and, for, you know, there's probably at some point there was a little bit of investor skepticism on some of these spaces, but you're seeing them really start to take off now. Um, and so I do think that sales name is an example of categories where you need to be a little bit patient early on, but they really do take off. And I think right now it is, is a pretty hot area. Totally. I'm, I'm an investor in voice ops. So that's my bad. But yeah, I, those are also. No, great. and totally both. Yeah. The whole category is great. So, yeah.
Um, so if, if, more broadly, if you were Jason Lemkin today, how would you be thinking about the the landscape in terms of, you know, there's sort of the question of, uh, you know, how, do a lot of these SaaS companies need VC funding? Are they venture backable? Uh, how big do the exits get? Uh, how would you be thinking about this from a from an overall VC perspective if you were, you know, say running a SaaS fund like Jason Lemkin? Yeah, well, first of all, I don't think I could ever claim to be Jason Lumpkin. I love, love Jason, so did, never never believe I could step in issues. But um, but I do think that, um, you know, honestly, learning from him and seeing what, what he's talked about, I do think that the the opportunities in SaaS abound in terms of numbers. And the number of, like, good, sustainable businesses that can come out of it are just, it's insane. About tens of thousands of companies, easily, sustainable, that could get to profitability and be good businesses. Um and um, the number that could get to hundreds of millions of revenue um, is is not as big, right? There's as you, as you probably see as well. Uh, it's it, you you use every every company in the world you know caps out at some point, right? Maybe, maybe Amazon will never cap out, but for the most part, companies at some point you start slowing down and you reach some you know point of market maturity and so on. And so you see these breakpoints of companies that kind of get to, you know, 5 million of AR and then they start slowing down a lot or 10 million or 20 million or 50 million and, you know, 100 million. And, and so the number that get past 100 million is, is not big. You know, it's, it's on the order of hundreds of companies uh, that, that get beyond 100 million of revenue. And as you know well, um, to, for certain types of funding models, if the company can't get beyond 100, 100 million of revenue, then it's, it doesn't, the math doesn't work out. And so what that, to me, that, that lends itself is to is, there's, there are more opportunities for smaller checks, more efficient financing. Um, somebody wrote a blog post recently about the um, emerging uh, phenomenon of debt in SaaS companies because there's more predictable revenue streams. I thought that was very compelling. Um, obviously, this is why private equity is super active because there's a lot of opportunity there for companies that probably will never be able to be public scale, but maybe either could be part of a platform rolled up to be public or um, could be nice businesses on their own. So what's, I think, you know, we all know like the, the real winners in SaaS right now, at least, are PE firms like Vista. And um, they're just proving that the, the economics of SaaS are awesome, but not every SaaS company is gonna become ServiceNow or Okta or, you know, one, or Slack or one of these Zoom totally standalone companies. And even some of the companies that have eked out IPOs and are sitting at a, you know, billion or $2 billion market cap, some of them are going to be independent and ride through it, but many of them will end up being, you know, taken private or acquired or whatever. So. And, and what, what separates the one who, the Octas and Zooms from, from the ones who can't get there? Or why is it so challenging for so many companies to get there? Is it because there's so much competition or is the, it's tougher to build a moat or, or, or what's the structural reason that, that prevents it? Yeah, I mean, I, by the way, your, your analysis is better than mine, but I'll give you some, just some things I think about. So, uh, you know, clearly one of the things is, you know, is there a very, very large horizontal market, right? That's, that's obviously beneficial. It's not, not required, actually, because you can build a really nice business like Viva's done in a, in a very vertical market. But, you know, Zoom would check the box big time on, on that, you know, gigantic horizontal market, right? So that, that's, that's one part. But then the second part, part and parcel, as you just said, is, is the um, kind of barrier to entry, switching costs, mode, whatever kind of buzzword you want to use for that. And obviously, Zoom so far has proven that um, they built some really unique technology that's pretty hard to replicate. Um, there's other categories of horizontal stuff that's become easier to replicate and so a little bit lower switching costs. So when the big platform companies get into it, it's harder to maintain your differentiated advantage. So to me, that, that mode thing is, is big. Um, the third one though, I think is, I mean, this is, I think ServiceNow's lesson in, in a nutshell is uh, both the, the, the ability and ambition of the, the team 
to build a true platform multi-product company versus getting stuck at one, right? So you look at what ServiceNow did, which not everyone listening to the podcast probably knows the ServiceNow story, but the, the first product they had, um, IT service management, which is essentially tracking like issues in IT inside a company, is a, was a very tactical space historically, never built big companies, but they had such a great vision and technology and just ambition. Um, and Frank Flutman, their first CEO, uh, was legendary and just built this huge multi-product company that aggregated so many parts of IT. And you look at the same thing of kind of, I think Okta is doing something very similar in their space. I think obviously Salesforce did this times a thousand with going from sales cloud to service cloud to marketing cloud to Tableau to Mealsoft and all that. And so I think that third area of the ambition and ability to be a true multi-product company and really build an ever-expanding TAM, not just because your core product is growing, but because you're willing and able to go be in lots of different markets and, and fight those fights and things like that. So those, those three things to me of like initial market size, barriers to entry, and then ambition. And you don't need all three to me, but you need maybe two or three, something like that. And then, so uh, we were talking about HR tech earlier. Does this mean you're sort of bullish or, or intrigued by HR tech? And if so, uh, where within it or, or what are the criteria by which a company uh, you know, needs to be successful or a product needs to be successful in HR tech, do you feel? Yeah, good question. And again, I have no sort of investments in that area, so definitely no expertise, but I'll, I'll, I'll add in one fourth dimension as I think about it that actually could allow for a public company, which is, in which NHR tech could be relevant. The fourth thing that actually, um, you know, probably does get, let you be independent long-term is just uh, uh, unfairly good economics because you have a really good distribution model or whatever, right? So really high margins naturally, like some of these bootstrap companies that just don't need capital. And so to me in HR tech, as an example, you know, independent companies, well, you know, if you have some super great economics model, you can probably be independent without a lot of the other things, because if you're a hundred million of revenue, but you have, you know, 30% EBITDA margins at that scale, you can definitely go public and have a great IPO. Right. And so, so to me, that's like one. So there's some HR tech companies that have very low touch models and mostly self-service. And I, I could see that being a, a factor, but if you look at the other ones, look, HR tech is super horizontal for sure. Um, but historically, there's like no barriers to entry and it's low switching costs, except for the core HRIS, like the workday kind of world, right? Everything else is very low switching costs. And so to me, you've got to be um, somebody who's going to be able to either have a really efficient distribution model or have this sort of multi-product kind of portfolio or have some barrier to entry. Maybe you have some data advantage or some kind of network effect, um, you know, company that, um, like if you look at Handshake, that's an interesting one, I think, where they've built this um, network, as you probably know, of um, college students and built almost like a LinkedIn for college students. And so they, they can then sell recruiting stuff off of that. Um, the recruiting side probably isn't that differentiated, but they've got the network. And so then they have a moat there, you know. So to me, if, if you don't have a moat, you don't have a big multi-product strategy, and you don't, don't have some crazy good economics, it's probably a little bit harder to be a, a long-term independent company there. I want to transition to uh, an element of company building you've thought quite a bit about, which is uh, which is hiring. Um, what, what do you think are the uh, most uh, non-obvious or, or differentiated uh, beliefs you have about what makes a great hiring organization or, or hiring principles, um, uh, both in theory or, or, or in practice? Yeah, totally. Um, I definitely think this is one of the areas that uh, I, I, I would say I continue to be um, 
humbled by my own uh, ability to be right, to be, to be, uh, have false positives and false negatives all the time. You know, in other words, areas where we think something's going to go great and it doesn't, and areas where we're not sure and they go great. So I think anyone that's been around a long time and is, is honest probably has some of those as well. But um, a few things that kind of jumped out to me, um, probably the biggest is that I think in building a company to last, I personally don't believe in the idea of hiring rock stars and kind of thinking of individuals that are somehow amazing and that that gets your company to be around for a long time. But, but that's probably true in the early days, you know, maybe. But um, I really think of much more like a, like a, instead of like a rock, rock star, it's like a symphony. You want like a lot of people that can play really well together. Um, and so I've seen the power, I was talking to the CEO yesterday about this, and the power of just that you identify people that are really embrace your values and you have a very strong values driven company and you can bring the best out of people. So I, I, I spent a lot more, more time thinking about thinking, I don't think as much about hiring the best person and think more about how do you bring the best out of people? Um, I think a lot of people have latent potential that company cultures don't bring out of them. Um, and people spend a lot of time looking for the mythical A player when in reality, there's a lot of people in their company, but they're just not, they don't have the ingredients in the culture for success. And so I, I've seen um, situations in our company where we hire people from a company culture where the culture is very toxic and people are very political and sharp elbows. And they, and, and you, th you go to those people and you think, oh, those people all have sharp elbows and they're toxic and they're very political. But those same people come over to our company and they look completely different. Like you literally visually look at them and they look different. And it's because those people don't, there's nothing wrong with those people. There's just the culture brought out the worst in them versus, you know, at least Gainsight, we try to be a little better in that regard. And so to me, um, spending time on bringing out the best in people versus just like looking for the mythical best person. That's, that's the one thing I think is big. Another one for us is um, understanding our own biases. So we, I definitely am super skeptical of the conversational interview. Um, you know, that is uh, whatever random question you Google off the internet that you ask the person and they say it and, you, know, you talk about the things that you have in common and it's just like a completely disorganized chat. So the things we try to do are number one, practical interviews where people present uh, on a topic. Um, for example, a salesperson doing a sample sales pitch, customer success person doing a sample business review. And then number two, structured interviewing with scorecards and clear criteria. And by the way, once you get to a later stage, everyone does this, but trying to do this as early as possible and then, then a final comment is, you know, I think we are like many companies in this modern world are really trying to focus on diversity inclusion in our hiring practices and across the board in the company. And so spending a lot of time thinking about what are our own biases for, for example, not using the term cultural fit, because um, that's often a sort of a, a buzzword for people that are like me. Um, and so spending a lot of time thinking about, okay, how do we provide a hiring process that allows us to attract the, and, and consider the broadest swath of people uh, possible. What do you think you're doing from a structural structural perspective that uh, is, that other companies maybe aren't doing? That uh, to, to your point earlier, is enabling you to turn you know these people who are struggling in other companies to uh, to start your companies. Like, what from a structural perspective are, are, are you doing to to make that possible? Yeah, it's interesting. It's funny. It's it's culture. It's it's a good question. It's it's almost hard to answer. Which is what is the structure that cult that causes culture, right? So I, I'd say. If I went back, so we've had our values in our company, which are well known inside the company and, and somewhat outside from the beginning. And um, I would say one thing is the values that we picked are values that I personally care about, not values that we picked because they sound good or they're things we found on the web. And I've seen some values in companies that are actually like, you can see they cut, cut and paste them from another company or whatever. And so I, to me, I, if you're the CEO or founder listening and 
I think it's like the kind of company where if you didn't have those, you wouldn't want to work there. Like that's it. Like, and if you're not passionate about those words, then I don't know how anything else is going to work. So everything in Gainsight culture values are things where like, if we didn't have it, I just, it doesn't matter how much money or success, I would just quit. Right. And so that's got, it's gotta be the way I articulate it is it's gotta be the why of the company, not just the how for some companies, the culture is the how I think that's fine, but just not going to ever be that, that effective. I, to me, the power is, can it be your why? So you explain why you do things through your values. So that's, that's one thing that's, that's been big. I think practically, uh, you know, if you think about like, what can you do day to day? Um, if you, every single all hands meeting, you should be talking about your values, every single like weekly meeting about, you know, status, you should be talking about your values. People, you should use the values in, in conversations about, obviously about performance, about, about uh, strategy. Uh, when we, one, one really tactical thing is when we have our um, presentations about new topics, um, one of our values is called success for all, which means how does what we're doing drive success for not just Gainsight's investors, but also our customers, our employees, their families, and the community around us. And uh, when people present on a new topic, they have to describe how does that drive success for all and how is it helping our customers, employees, their families, investors, and the community around us. And so I think that's, that's the kind of thing where you put it into like the practical frameworks of what people do day to day. I think that makes a big difference. I think that's a, that's a perfect place to, to wrap. Uh, Nick, uh, this has been a, a great episode. I, I want you to leave with any plugs if you could talk more about uh, or your, your upcoming book or point people where they can learn more about it and, and more about uh, you and Gatesite on the internet. Yeah, totally. So I, I'd say three things if you want to learn more. Uh, number one is the book is called Customer Success. It's on Amazon, easy to find. Um, there's another uh, second book, uh, which is uh, Customer Success Economy, coming out in May, also be on Amazon. Um, number two is um, if you're interested in, um, your team's interested in customer success, we have our Pulse Conference in May. It'll be about 6,000 people in San Francisco. Highly recommend it. People really, really enjoy the event and get a lot of learning out of it. And so check that out on our website. And then number three, if you want to connect with me, it's NRMeta, N-R-M-E-H-T-A on Twitter. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.